Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hey, everybody. This is the Mixed Experience. It's the only live weekly show about being racially and culturally mixed. I'm your host, Heidi DeRoe, the resident mixed chick who has mixed thoughts about a mixed-up world. And I am super excited to talk to our guest today because I think we're going to have a conversation that can change future conversations about what this whole multiracial movement is or multiracial conversation or what we're really doing here, right? Like, how do we move the needle, as I like to say. But... First, as usual, I have these announcements, and I know I do this every week, but it's so, so important to me. This is a labor of love. Oh, my God, if I didn't love it, I wouldn't be doing it, guys. It's so much work. I have a team of dedicated, talented, amazing volunteers, and there are about 25 or 30 of us who do this. Um, I do it pretty much full-time, but we're putting together an amazing homecoming, essentially, of mixed people and families and families of transracial adoption, and we're all coming together on June 13th in Los Angeles for the Mixed Remixed Festival. Let me say that again. June 13th in Los Angeles at the Mixed Remixed Festival, and it's free, and we want you there. Will you please go and register so we know who's coming, how many people are coming at www.mixedremixed.org. We have an amazing program set up for you guys. We have panels and workshops. We have Jamie Ford coming, people, New York Times bestselling author. We have Matt Johnson coming, who just uh, released his book, Loving Day, and it's getting really rave reviews, and he's causing a little bit of a storm on the internet because he embraces the word mulatto. We're going to have to talk about it, but it's a great, great book. He's going to be there. We have Marie Mockett. We just have an amazing lineup. So if you're anywhere near LA, and even if you're not, get there. It's free. It's totally free. Go to www.mixedremix.org. I think that's really my only announcement, except please register, please be there. It's a really, it's a labor of love. And we just need to make sure that we know that people want this to happen. I mean, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of money also. And uh, we just want to make sure that uh, this is something that we should continue in the future. So yeah, register with your attendance and with your social media sharing as well. All right, let's get to some real meaty good stuff. I'm very excited to have our guest on today. Today, I'm welcoming James Ong, who is a recent graduate of the UCLA Asian American Studies Master's Program and a current doctoral student in the UC Davis History Department, where he studies racial and ethnic history, immigration, critical race theory, and environmental history. He recently completed his MA thesis, which examines how socially constructed monoracial and multiracial dichotomies emerge from discursive processes and interpersonal interactions, creating contextually specific definitions of racial normativity. 
Yeah, we're going to have to get into that very slowly, guys. I'm excited to. James has co-taught and co-authored courses on mixed race and Asian American history at UCLA with Lane Hirabayashi and Robert Romero. These courses engage critical race theory, historiography, and media analysis to address past and contemporary issues. Beyond ethnic studies, his research interests include Japanese and Japanese American history. Uh, he has also contributed to courses related to general Asian American history, contemporary U.S. history, and the history of East Asia. He's involved in various community projects and occasionally writes articles on race and identity. He enjoys traveling, photography, film cycling, and soccer in his free time. He's also the creator, CEO, and lead author for the coffee website. Coffee is for lovers. I'm very excited to welcome today to the Mixed Experience, James Ong. Hi. Hello. Yay. I'm so glad you're here with us, James. Um, I know that you were feeling a little bit nervous about the interview because, well, this is not like a normal thing for a young scholar to do, but I think you're going to have to get used to it because you have a lot of great ideas that you're going to have to share out loud. But I well, do have a very... very kind of <laughs> well, it's very true, but I have a very important and pressing question that I must ask you immediately. Sure. Uh, there, There is no right answer, but here goes. What are you? <laughs> How did I know that was going to be your first question? <laughs> um, you know, that changes every day. And today I'm going to say I'm James Ong, and uh, I'm half Chinese and a quarter German and a quarter Italian. And I'm a male. I'm a scholar. I'm a soccer player. I'm a friend. I'm a partner. Um, I'm a critical thinker. Uh, again, you know, see, I have to answer how you, I would think you would want to hear it because the certain answers cue certain ideas about people. But that's, yeah, that's, that's good for today. I think, I think it's a fabulous right-on answer. I liked it a lot, A+, plus, certainly. <laughs> um, well, so I wanted to talk to you today because we started a conversation via email about where the multiracial movement or the conversation about multiracial experience and identity is going and what's happening. Um, but before we do that, I kind of just wanted to go a little bit into your background uh, and where you're coming at by thinking about these issues. So you mentioned that you had uh, different ethnicities in your background. Can you tell us a little bit more about where you grew up and who your family was? Sure. Um, the story I like telling because it changes every time I tell it. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's funny you asked me, what are you? It's, you know, I, yeah, this conversation we started over a year ago, and I think most people who are multi-ethnic, I think anybody who's racialized in this country, whether you're African-American or Latino or Asian, whatever, everybody wants to ask, you know, what are you, where are you from? And they're not asking, what city are you from? They're not asking, you know, what, what borough are you from? They're not interested in questions like that. They're interested in kind of getting at who you are, what your composition is, and some days, people look at me and they ask, oh, what are you? And they say, oh, I say, well, I'm Chinese. And they go, oh, you don't look very Asian. And then I admit that. And I say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm mixed. And they go, oh, yeah, you don't look very white. So, you know, it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. And then so every day I get reminded, like, oh, yeah, this is why I'm doing it. And, like, literally two days ago, my friend, here's the department, you know, we're good friends. We talk all the time about everything. And she goes, you're not Japanese? And I'm like, no. 
And she, she, her mind was blown because she assumed that I was Japanese and that I wasn't mixed race and all that other stuff. It was very weird. Anyway. This is um, a friend you've known for a long time, you're saying. Oh, it's, it happens. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much a weekly basis. Some stranger or some friend asks me that question because they've just been too afraid to ask or they're, just, you know, they're really brave and they want to just come up to me and ask me, um, which is just weird. I don't know. I don't, that's per, I don't know. I wouldn't just go up to someone and ask them that. It seems kind of bold. I'm not that bold. Right. But anyway. Well, so one of the things that's been so interesting to talk to different people who um, are of multiracial, multicultural heritage, depending on wh- where they grew up and the way they look, they get a different response from the world. And then mm-hmm. they have a different perspective on themselves. I'm wondering, did you grow up in, in California or were you um, – somewhere else where there might not have been a lot of people who look like you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, that's a really good point. I think that where you come from shapes a lot about who you are. And I would say definitely for me too. So um, I grew up in the East Bay Area. So all the people in the Bay Area, I lived in Livermore. I know you don't think that's the Bay Area. Sorry. But <laughs> I'm going to call it no. East Bay Area. So I grew up between the East Bay Area and split between that and uh, Sonoma County. And I grew up in neighborhoods that were predominantly white. Uh, and actually, I think my brother and I, so I have a twin brother named John, and uh, we're both mixed. I guess we have to be. Um, Are you identical or fraternal twins? We're fraternal twins. So we okay. we don't look alike, and we don't act alike, and our, our interests are very different. But that's, and that's another story in itself, because everyone assumes, oh, twins are the same. And it's like, we're a perfect example of how not true that is. Um, but we grew up in neighborhoods, right, that were all white. And so, you know, my dad would tell us, you know, you're, you guys are Chinese, you have a Chinese heritage, you know, you have grandma, you have everyone else, like, you need to be proud of that. And when you're around a bunch of white folk who don't know any better and don't know any other Chinese people or don't know very many, they all assume that you're Chinese. So when I was growing up as a little kid, I assumed, oh, yeah, I go to Chinese New Year, I go to eat Chinese food, I must be Chinese. You know, I don't really know what that means. I'm a young kid. So, you know, my friends would always kind of make me the butt of jokes. Like, I know they meant it lovingly, if you can they raise this joke loving, like, oh, yeah, the yellow kid or the Asian kid. or You know, I mean, it's harmless. It's not like they're calling me something really mean. But, you know, because I was out, kind of outed and I wanted to have friends, I, I like, kind of let them make the jokes. But I was like, oh, yeah, so I guess I must be Chinese. Totally, absolutely, because everyone makes fun of me for that or whatever. But when I got to college and I, the first time I really been, like, surrounded by other Asian Americans and, and Asians from Asia, I was wow, like, yes, this is where I want to be. Like, I can connect with people who look like me and are, like, have the same background as me. And when you're 18, you know, everyone at 18 is going through the, the life thing. You know, they're trying to figure out who they are, what makes them, who they are, et cetera, et cetera. And when I would tell people, you know, in college, everyone wants to know who you are, too. So you say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm Chinese. And they go, oh, yeah, well, um, where are your parents from? And I say, well, my mom's from uh, Modesto. My dad's from Sacramento. And they go, wait, your parents aren't from China? No, they're they're American. They're you know my dad's Chinese American. I go, oh, only your dad's Chinese American. Oh, well, you're not Chinese. And I go, wait, wait, what do you mean? And they'd say, oh, but you're culturally white. And I'm like, yeah, so are lots of Asian Americans. And they're like, yeah, but it's also that your mom is white, so you must be white. And it was, I was just so confounded by that. I didn't know what to do with that for years. I was just like, but but I thought I was this one thing, and clearly I'm not. <laughs> Wow. And what what years are these? Because I feel like 
we keep talking about how things are changing and you know I'm guessing you're a couple of generations behind me and you had a very similar situation to my own college situation of like trying to find your people and then them saying hey not really not you right um yeah I think that's a funny thing is a lot of times I tell the story to to like my colleagues and most of my colleagues are a lot older than me and I they go oh yeah I know I understand that so I'm talking about I, I was born in 1987 and I went to college in 2005 so it's not that long ago but wow when I, when I tell it to young folk they always go like oh Mixed race, that's not a thing. That's a first world problem or whatever. And I'm like, well, where I grew up, like, it wasn't a first world problem. It was, like, my problem. And, you know, it, people can write off as that wherever they want. But, yeah, this is pretty recent. And I think it's still, I think it's still troubled a lot of students, even though now I think it's really gotten traction since the mid-2000s, especially in the Asian American communities, that this is a thing that everyone's really talking about, positively or negatively, is going to really shift paradigms. So I think, yeah, maybe, I think it might be different for my students now, but I don't really know. Well, so I'm just going to switch into the conversation I really have been wanting to have with you, and, and I hope we just kind of like go back and forth and, and toy with these ideas, because I don't know that I have answers at all, and that's why I was so excited to talk to you. But one of the things that you had written to me about was this idea that you were exhausted, and I don't <laughs> know if you've heard an earlier episode that I did. I call it mulatto fatigue where, yeah. you know, you keep talking about it and you keep talking about it and you think, oh, this is a breakthrough, and then you find some community, whether online or in person, like at the festival. And and then suddenly what we get is, um, yes, we get the census changed, but then what do we have? Like we have lots of websites with pictures of mixed people <laughs> and mixed-race families. Um, I what, Like what do you make of that? It, are we actually making any movement from me like going to college in the late 1980s and you going to college, you know, in the early 2000s and our our experiences are similar but what what has really changed and what are the changes actually meaning for us actually going forward? That is a huge question. But I will do my best to answer it. We're going to solve um, all of it in this half hour, by the way. No, we, we're, we're not at all. <laughs> this is the beginning of a dialogue. Well, I think for me, for me, my number one goal with going into all of this, either as a, a personal or intellectual exercise, is that I have always wanted to be critical with this kind of, I, I call it a multi-ethnic lens or multi-ethnic framework, whatever. You can go into history, sociology, media studies, whatever, with this very critical mindset of, you know, systems and ideas and paradigms and groupings all rely on this idea of stability. And it's very obvious to you and I and to lots of other people that these categories aren't stable at all. In fact, they're all fiction. They're socially constructed. And yet the power of them is that people still believe they're solid and that they're not changing, that they're static. And so I, your, your phrase of uh, the mulatto fatigue is really good. Uh, a friend of mine, Alejandro, uh, he was on one of my panels last year and he did this really incredible art piece. So this is an academic panel. So I'm just going to tell stories because I think that's, that's probably more interesting to viewers yeah. or listeners. Um, I had this guy in my panel, and it was an academic panel. I had I had Akemi Johnson, who is this phenomenal writer. If you haven't read her work, she's uh, based out of San Francisco, really, really smart, really great writer. And I had Cindy Nakashima. Yeah, oh, she is, wonderful. yeah. And Cindy Nakashima was on my panel. Cindy had the flu 
And she came across the Bay Bridge, and she's like, well, you know, I was sick, but I'm here. And she gave this just phenomenal speech. And there was this wild card, Alejandro, and I didn't know him. And he said, I'm going to do a performance piece. And I thought, oh, cool, he's going to play some music for us. Great. And his, his, his piece was called, I'm Not Exotic, I'm Exhausted. And I was like, ooh, this sounds, <laughs> this sounds good. This is good. I like this. And it was him for like three or four minutes trying to speak, but keeping himself from speaking and just making these really loud, like, I don't say grunting sounds, but it was like well, a sound of frustration. Like literally, he was so frustrated. His face was turning red. And everyone in the room was kind of like, what is this? <laughs> I had no idea. I was, I was laughing. I was loving it. I thought it was so great because I totally understand why he did it. And I totally understand that exhaustion. Because, right, like you said, you get this energy. You feel so good. You feel like, oh, yeah, we're making change because the sense has changed. But now what? And then now what for me is, well, you have to keep being critical. And then everyone says, but you have the senses change. What else do you need? What? Part of the exhaustion comes from the fact that when you're, when you're mixed or when you're doing these things, I think there is a sense of isolation. And I think there's a sense of you have community and you have constituency. But there is a uniqueness in every, and that's kind of one of the benchmarks, right, of multi-ethnic studies is that we're individuals and we all have our own specific backgrounds, our own specific cultural identities. And so there is kind of this implicit individuality. But also that you, you keep fighting, you keep wanting to say like, oh, no, this, you know, I'm showing you that this idea is not true, that there's a lot of mixture and a lot of diversity. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get it, I get it. Your friends say, oh, yeah, I get it. And then the next week, there's another thing on the radio. And there's another thing on the media. I mean, there was that, uh, that terrible shooting last year with uh, Elliot Rogers, the, the student at UCSB. And uh, people made that huge deal about the fact that he was mixed race and everyone was saying, well, is he white? Is he Chinese? And people were saying things like, oh, he, you know, it's tragic mulatto that, you know, people online, like when you look at the YouTube clips and the commentary, people were saying, oh, this violence streak is just obvious. It's why mixed race people are just so messed up inside. And so I'm just thinking like, no matter how much we fight these stereotypes, everyone's just going to keep going right back to them. They're going to keep going back to these tropes. And sure, you call it a first world problem, but I don't really think that it is in terms of like, I'm not talking about identity politics. I don't want people to tell me, oh, yes, James, you're Chinese. Good job. And pat me on the back. I'm talking about, I'm talking about really breaking big boundaries. I'm talking about like, I want mixed race people to realize like they, they should feel empowered and they should feel very special in that it's a luxury to have such a critical mindset that we all have. We all kind of know these, these ideas and these identities aren't, they are socially constructed and we can fight that. And that's, I don't want to say fight because I'm not trying to say like I'm trying to start a revolution. I'm just saying you have a very unique perspective of the world and you can really challenge some very implicit beliefs about things. And I think that's very important for people to kind of come to terms with. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's really where I see the movement going is now we have to really see that, okay, well, we got the census changed. Now we have to kind of look at our own groups and our identities and kind of look at our constituency and say like, hey, especially Asian Americans are going to say, hey, it's one thing to say we're Hapa and we're beautiful and that's great, but we got to be in solidarity with other folks about other groups who are mixed race. I mean, African Americans are all mixed race and yet no one acknowledges that. We got to be in solidarity with that. You know, well, I mean, this, is, this is one of the great things about being um, someone who's trying to talk about these issues is that I actually think of the the listenership to the show is is everyone essentially you know it's um 
I say we all know someone, are someone, or love someone who's in the mixed experience, and so we're all part of this conversation, and yet this is the hardest thing to communicate to people, to say, wow, my audience is actually everyone. Um, So, but but I think one of the difficulties is that there are these, not necessarily factions, or even competing interests, but people... um, kind of rally around their own smaller um, communities around identity. So how mm-hmm. you know, people who are part Asian, um, not versus, but as opposed to, um, you know, people who are half white and half black, or even now there's a lot of discussion about people who are first generation mixed race as opposed to multi-generationally mixed race. And well, that's oh, my thing, gosh. Yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. I, I get thing. them behind the times. It's a thing now. It's a total thing. And wow. and I'm thinking, why why are we doing this? How do we, in, in your version of, how do we address it critically? Um, in my version, the idea is to address it through the art. And because I feel like that's when we break down barriers the easiest. Mm-hmm. When um, Barbara Kingsolver, the writer, says uh, that you that stories can create empathy for what it, what she calls the quote unquote theoretical stranger, um, so that when you can place yourself in a story of a mixed race person, then suddenly that experience isn't so different from you. But but yet and still we have these I guess these factions that are going on in the multiracial community how how do we how do we bring everyone together can't we all just get along i yeah right <laughs> i mean if, well i'm i'm going to go on just a little bit because part of the problem is that people come to this conversation at different points in their lives looking for different things for their lives and in different ways so even though like the umbrella i have is very large the the white mom who's just adopted a black kid from South Central has a very different agenda, questions, needs, um, soul desires than the 13-year-old who lives, who's uh, half black and half white who lives in Iowa City. And yet and still, I think we all belong under the same umbrella, but how do we, how do we do that? Yeah, I, no, I agree. I think, I think you're right that, you know, but it's, it's kind of the same thing with, with racial identity when people kind of come to terms with their ethnicity. Some people come to it, they're born with it, they're, you know, embedded on their skin. Um, you just grew up being racialized, but some people come to it later in life, different points in life, and that identity changes. And I think with being multi-ethnic, it's hard because, right, you're, you're not just fighting the mainstream, you're also sometimes kind of having this conflict with what people consider minority groups, and you kind of feel in between, you know, this in-betweenness is a big theme. But I think one of the things that gives us constituency and gives me constituency, and I've, I've had just amazing conversations with everybody from different backgrounds, is that being mixed is experiential and feeling kind of displaced is experiential. And it's an experience that people can connect with. And I think it's something that people who are like binational, someone who maybe grew up abroad for a few years and had to move back or had to move around because of parents' work or something, or that people who are multi-ethnic or multi, like really multicultural, really multicultural households, they can all kind of connect this idea that we are in between and that's a wonderful thing and that's a really you know powerful experience and that's something 
unique that, yeah, the mainstream may not get, but we get it. And it, it, that seems very simple, but I think you're right. Like, through the arts, there's some phenomenal artists and the phenomenal writers. Actually, the first thing that got me involved in mixed race studies was a book called Half Plus Half. Um, yeah. and it's Catherine, Catherine O'Hearn wrote it, and uh, I just picked it up, and I took it on a trip, and I read it cover to cover, like, in a day and a half. And I was like, this is – these stories, these narratives were so good, and I connected with these narratives so well. Because these people, I don't know them. I don't know what they look like. But their stories just, like, resonated with me. I'm like, oh, I've had that happen. Like, oh, I know people who have that happen to them. And then I connected with uh, Stephen Murphy Shigematsu, who was on your last show, and he's, you know, he's all about narrative and healing, and he's really been a wonderful mentor to me, and he and I are always talking about the power of narrative. And I think narratives and storytelling and the arts are just a wonderful way to connect people over what are these, they're actually very difficult and very kind of painful stories and, and issues. Uh, so I think you're right. I think, I think something with, I wish we could all just get along, and everyone wants to have constituency, and everyone wants to have their own kind of groupism, and that's fine. Um, I don't think we can really affect that, but I think what we can do is find the other people, find folks who kind of get it or kind of on the same wavelength and just have, you know, community. I mean, the, what is it? The, you have the, your mixed festival doing that, Loving Day is doing that, is just celebrating the idea of diversity and not in a kind of cheesy way, in a very critical and a very honest way. Well, so one of the things that uh, I also have found frustrating over the years, <laughs> this is really just me ranting without ranting. This is what Go I want to do on the show. <laughs> Go for it. But, you know, I, I find it so um, oh exhausting that each generation seems to recreate everything that's happened before. And, mm-hmm. and yes, there is the census, so they don't have to necessarily do that over again because that is at, at least done for right now. What they do do is it, it's as if they, um, you know, when they're like 18 and they discover, oh, I get to talk about being Hoppe or I get to talk about being mixed, uh, they, they recreate everything. Um, and there's not, a whole lot of, um, there's not a whole lot of awareness about a history to it. So one of the projects I feel like I have wanted to take on in my life is to create a history for not just mixed race people, but the history of mixed mixedness, if that's a mm-hmm. word. Um, where, where do you settle on that as a historian yourself? Like, what is what is the role of knowing history in terms of actually making progress going forward? I'm so glad you asked me that question. <laughs> oh, good. Um, yeah, you know, um, if you haven't invited Paul Spigard on your show yet, you should definitely do it. Um, I love he, him. <laughs> oh, you know him? Yes. Oh, he's he's, he's a the friend best. of mine. Yeah, he's, he's great. the best. Yeah, his book Mixed Blood was another one of these like kind of groundbreaking texts for me that really made me just open my eyes and kind of freak out and go, "Oh my God, this is a thing." And something that he taught me, and we've had discussions about every once in a while, is this idea that you know we are all mixed. This this is the idea you know we're entering a post-racial society. Well, you know if we acknowledge that race is a social construct, then yes, totally sure we're Postural society is a silly idea. It's all fake anyway. But then you can all say, well, it's all fake. We're all the same. Well, that's, that's not true. I mean, there is racialization. There's distinctions we make implicitly, socially, politically. But I think, you know, history is great because what it shows you is that identity is always temporally and spatially situated. And by that, I mean what it means to be X, Y, or Z is always going to change over time 
going to change when people come together. When the first tribe of whoever met the second tribe of whoever and they had trade and they had conflict or whatever and, you know, they engaged with each other and then maybe some people mixed and then maybe some people had families and then I treated, created Tribe C. And Tribe C went on and maybe made it with Tribe A. And, tri- you know, et cetera, et cetera. What I mean is that we've always been mixing culturally or quote-unquote racially if we're going to accept that race as some sort of realistic biological social idea. But I think what's what's great about history, too, is that if you look just at contemporary history, which is what I do um, the last 200 years or so, is these ideas, these ideas of identity that we have are extremely situated, and you can point to kind of an origin. And origins are kind of, you know, they're, they're tricky. You don't want to say this is the origin of an idea because it's not necessarily the case always. There's different origins for many things and the same ideas. But I'll give you an example. Uh, before the Meiji Restoration in 1861, which is in Japan, uh, before that, you know, you have the Tokugawa shogunate. So Japan is, quote-unquote, a nation, a nation-state, or whatever you want to call it. But people's regional identities was much more important to them, uh, being from Tohoku, for instance, and speaking a certain dialect or having a certain cultural milieu is much more important than being Japanese. That idea doesn't exist. Until we have the rise of nation-states, and suddenly Japan becomes a nation. It has an economy. It has an army. It has a bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly, when people go abroad, they're no longer, you know, from Tohoku. They're suddenly they're from Japan. And it's a big mutual process because they get racialized when they, they move abroad. And at home, there's projects, you know, these political projects. Omiya would not talk about uh, racial formation. We have these political projects telling you that you're Japanese. So today, when we think about Asian Americans, I'll just give you these examples because that's all I really know. Asian Americans, we have Chinese Americans, we have Japanese Americans, we have Korean Americans. And yet, right, 200 years ago, Japanese American was a brand new category, or Japanese was a brand new category. And in China, too, I mean, today, I talk about this with my colleagues all the time, like, to call China a country is really difficult because when uh, the Communist Party was starting to make ethnic categorizations, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ethnic groups. How do you decide which ones are going to be recognized by the state and which ones are you going to ignore? And so you end up with 35 different categories, and yet Mandarin speakers and Cantonese speakers are still always kind of combating with each other about the origins of China and Chinese identity. Chinese Americans are still in that conversation, and it's hard. And I think, so I haven't, I haven't provided a really concrete answer, and the reason is because what I'm trying to show is that identity is so fluid and it's always changing and it's always situated, and it, and it will continue to change. I think in 100 years, Sadly, Heidi, you and I are going to have the same conversation again. We're going to go, oh, what is Americanness? What is African American? I mean, some categories have remained static for hundreds of years, and some are brand new, and more will be made. I mean, it's just going to keep happening, and that's the, the funny part about history, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Here, here's another piece of this idea about history. Um, one of the things you were just saying is, you know, people mixed racially, culturally, because of trade or conflict, and this has been going on forever, as we know from the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, you know, it's the conflict part that I wanted to pick up on here, because I've recently had a few guests on the show who have talked about the role of forgiveness, essentially, Mm -hmm. um, for a, a background that was you know, not necessarily chosen, but is definitely part of their family history or their own growing up. So the two guests I was thinking of in particular were uh, Jennifer Teague, who is a biracial woman, um, half 
white German and half um, African Nigerian, I believe. And she discovered that her father was a notorious SS Nazi officer. Um, wow. Yeah, he was actually portrayed by uh, Ralph Fiennes in Schindler's List. And, oh. um Yeah, <laughs> so she's written this memoir about coming to terms with that. She didn't know it until she was an adult and just happened to discover that that was, in fact, her grandfather. Um, she hadn't known him. He uh, was hung. But she had known his wife, who had lived in the concentration camp as, like, the lady of the house and was trying to come to terms with the fact that, you know, for her to move forward, it was important for her not to hide this story, but to illuminate it and to try to figure out how she could come to terms with that coming together that created her, right? Like her mixed identity is bound up in a lot of um, shame Mm -hmm. in the same way that, like Michelle Obama, the genealogist discovered that her, I think it was her great-grandfather was biracial, had a, a white father, slave holder, I believe, and a black mother. And she hasn't talked about that. So what, what is the role of, I said forgiveness, but maybe what I'm trying to say is the role of claiming those shaming identities from our past to help us move forward and and break out of this paradigm of of thinking of race as something that's static. Mm. Do they have anything to do with each other? I really am just thinking out loud here. Well, I have no, to smart on the line. It's a, question. it's a great, great question. I think, I guess forgiveness is, is a great term. Uh, I guess I would say kind of this idea of embracing reality or embracing kind of painful pasts. Um, I mean, speaking from experience, I don't really have a painful past, so I can't say that I mean, I have any sort of big history to hide, but I think these kind of higher-profile stories, yeah, I think... Hmm. Well, here's another, here was another hmm. guest I was thinking of. Um, I had uh, Jim Grimsley on. He wrote a memoir recently. I don't know how I shed my skin is what it's called, and it was about him growing up as a white, young man in the South right when the schools were desegregated. So he went from going from an all-white school to going to an integrated school to going to a mostly black school. And, um, you know, he was very, very um, pointed in saying, you know, I have to recognize that I have racism in me and I'm on, I'm on red alert essentially all the time. And, but in order for me to move forward, and have a conversation that's meaningful and progressive and, and where I want to be, I have to recognize that and I have to admit it and I have to claim it in some way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have to claim the, claim the shame and, and say, you know what, I was a kid and I didn't know better and today I do. So I can forgive that past self who, who thought mm-hmm. that way. And so I'm wondering how, how much of that is important for us to do as a as a nation really to to really go through that kind of claiming the shame and forgiveness to be able to move forward and and then start to recognize the fluidity of these identities like if you 
if you're not just the oppressor, but also part of the oppressed, then does that change the conversation going forward? I think I think it's important to understand that you can be both. You can be the oppressor and the oppressed. And I, I don't think that people, I don't think that absolves people of being racist or being prejudiced in any way. In fact, I think you're right. I think everybody has to kind of own that. I have to own that I'm a male. I have to own that I'm Chinese. I have to own that I'm lower middle class, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody kind of has to own their position. But I think this idea of, of the nation kind of coming to terms with this, is, it's really fascinating you ask that question. Last night I just went to one of my professor's retirement dinners, uh, Clarence Walker, and he wrote this wonderful book called Mongrel Nation, which is talking about uh, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And it's a really great book. If you haven't read it before, it's like $5 on, on Amazon. Go pick it up. Um, I will. Thank you. Now, yeah, it's a great book. Uh, I guess everybody should read it. <laughs> um, but he really plays with this idea that national identity and idea that we are, quote-unquote, a white nation rests on this, these kind of images we have of the founding fathers as being these kind of archetypes of religious morality, of being politically sound, of being these kind of pure individuals. Well, what happens when we acknowledge that Thomas Jefferson was sleeping with Sally Hemings? And really, I mean, the title of the books is everything. You know, we are not a nation of purity. We're a nation of mongrels. And just kind of poking fun at the fact that we want to trick ourselves into believing that we're a white nation, that we're a pure nation. I mean, race mixing, as this book says, is integral to the founding of the nation. It's a violent act and as a way of constructing power. But I think Professor Walker is very astute in making this observation. But I also think he's, what he's really telling us to do, and I agree with him, is come to terms with the painful past and work towards being critical of oneself and work towards being critical of the future to be able to have these uncomfortable conversations. I think the hardest part for people is just not being able to speak about them because maybe they feel ashamed or they're afraid they're going to get made fun of. Especially young folks, I think they're kind of afraid of, like, what will happen if I'm myself? What will happen if I show myself to people? And I hope one day, I mean, it's a very hopeful future that mixed race folk and everyone else won't have to think about that. It'll just be, and that'd be great. But that's going to take a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't see that happening in my lifetime, but I feel like there is a chance for us to move forward with the discussion somehow if we if we do keep talking and if we release the shame and if we take down the, the barriers we have in our minds. Like I, when I'm talking to people about the festival and, and when I say people right now, I'm talking about quote unquote white people. <laughs> like I realize I'm trying to say everything about the festival without saying anything about race or mixed race because I don't want them to be alienated. I say, this really great film and craft activities and, you know, there are these great artists and this writer on the New York Times bestseller list is there and blah, blah. And uh, eventually I have to say the name of the festival or explain it just a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And I realize, wow, like, you know, I would say I'm one of the quote-unquote professional mulattoes and I'm still scared to talk about it sometimes because I don't want them to check out of the conversation right away. But then if mm-hmm. I take a little bit more time, I can keep talking to someone who, who may not like feel connected, like, oh, you know, I, am I allowed to be there? And I'm like, yeah, everyone is allowed to be there. We want everyone to be there. And eventually someone will say something like, you know what? I am part of the mixed experience because 
you know, my little, my cousin has adopted two kids from Guatemala. And mm-hmm. I love those kids. And, you know, here's a picture. And I'm like, uh, yeah, guy who just thought you were white, like, you're connected. You know, you're, <laughs> you're not just white guy. Um, and you get to be part of the festival, too. But but it's very interesting the way in which we have to get there is through, oh, gosh, like a lot of somersaults in language sometimes. And mm-hmm. and maybe that's that's the only way we can do it. It's exhausting, right? It's exhausting. This it's is where exhausting. we started the conversation. <laughs> well, I think, but I think you bring up a really great point. Uh, and I think this is something where, and, and I don't want to get preachy to everybody out there, but I think if you bring up a great point, this idea of uh, my advisor at UCLA, Lane, would always talk about the importance of family. And, and I, I think family is important. I mean, don't get me wrong. But he really emphasized, you know, the importance of family as a safe space. And over time, I really started to like, believe him, and, and I, really, I really believe what he says now. A lot of the healing of identity and a lot of this change happens at home. And sometimes, you know, like when parents, like after 67, after loving Virginia, lots of people started getting married legally, intermarried, and alienated a lot of people from their parents, young folk, oh, you're just being crazy young folk. People get disowned for marrying someone outside of their race. But there's also this trend of when the children start to come, when the grandchildren start to come, sometimes people start to forgive and grandparents, you know, instead of seeing their kids as, you know, their grandkids as something different, they just see them as their grandkids. And I think there's something very powerful that you said, you know, that gentleman who has uh, a friend or a, a colleague or a relation who uh, adopted kids in Guatemala, that's his in, that's his connection. And that's something that's going to start bringing people together and having a comfortable conversation. And I think that's, I think what you're doing with this project and with this festival and being so exciting is wonderful because me sitting in my office and having these critical conversations is great for people who want <laughs> to come listen to me rant. But I think, I think what you're doing is so constructive. And I think, that and this is if I have to give a message at all again. Sorry to be preachy, all, but have these conversations. You're preaching to the all. choir, which is good. Right? We, we, right. we need this. Like we need backup. Like we need language and words so we can go out and get the others who aren't listening to this right now. So preach. Yeah, just you know, just listen, listen to your kids, listen to your grandkids. When people tell you they have a mixed identity, they feel mixed. Let them have the space to define themselves. Let them have their agency to say who they are. And try to understand that things are not as bad as maybe you once thought five minutes before the person told you that. And I think that really having support from loved ones and friends and letting, letting them let you say who you are or whatever, I think that's really important. And I think it's really vital to this idea of healing as a nation. Because I think, right, there's all this, this pain and this history and all this difference, and we may never get over it. And I'm, you know, I want to be optimistic, but, you know, the reality is it's very difficult. But I think it's important that we as individuals go into our communities, you know, go to our families, tell them you love them, and talk about this difference in a really safe space, cultivate a safe space to talk about identity. And I think, yeah, the healing has to start with yourself first, and healing has to start with those around you. Because to be fair, when, when some guy on the street or some person on the street starts questioning who I am, it doesn't bother me anymore. It used to. But I think over the years, I've, I've gone to this point where I have so much good support from people around me. My brother is a huge supporter of my work, and my father understands my work, my, my aunts and uncles, and they were the first step. And then after that, my friends really started to get on board with that. And now people can have these really kind of difficult conversations with me, 
because we trust each other and we trust that these are going to be positive steps towards moving towards some sort of greater critical mindset. But when it comes to strangers, I just kind of say, hey, man, like, that's your thought, that's your thing. But that's not really an issue of me. That's, that's their issue, right? I mean, it's, it's not about you. It's about them. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. It's hard to get over that. But I think it's got to start. Families are important, man. You've got to start with families. Well, we're starting with families. We're starting with conversation. Um, I think that's, that's the way we're going to go. James, thank you so much. How can people find you if they want to connect with you um, after the podcast? Oh, thank you so much. Um, you can find me on Facebook, James Ong on Facebook. Um, if you want to email me, my email is, uh, well, I don't know if I want to give up my email in the air. Uh, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. You can just, email just me and I'll me. forward it to him. How about that? If you want to email him, I'll, I'll forward yeah. it to you. Um, but otherwise, like, thanks so much for the work that you do, and please continue to do the work in whatever capacity you can because we need more voices. We need diversity of voices in, in this. And when I get too exhausted, then at least there'll be another person behind me picking up the slack. <laughs> <laughs> no, you'll never, no, you, you're, you're a beacon. We can't have you get exhausted. We all got to go forward. Oh, I'm going to take a nap now. No, <laughs> thank you so much, James. And, and let's check in again, uh, because I feel like we have a lot more to talk about. Uh, oh, yeah. Going we just, Tip of the iceberg, and this, it was such an honor to be on your show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. I, I'm so glad I got a chance to talk to him because he is, you know, in the thick of thinking about these issues critically in, in a scholarly setting in a way that I am not any longer. And um, my milieu is personal stories, as well as artistically told stories, whether it's in films or books. Um, but I, I always am excited to talk to someone who is looking at this in a systemic way, as opposed to story to story. And yet, and still, I think it's the stories that went out, that the stories are the things that get us uh, from point A to point B to to connecting, from being disconnected to connected. Um, anyway, there, there's so much more to talk about, about all of this, about whether or not there is any progress in the multiracial community or movement um, or whatever it is you want to call it. I think it's still a question. And um, it's a question I think we should keep asking to make sure that we're actually making change, meaningful change going forward. Okay, guys, sorry for the little rant right there. I'm so glad you listened today. Um, we're getting close to the end of season two right now. I'm going to be doing something just a little bit different for the summer, shorter shows. Uh, I better not tell you any more right now because it's not fully formed yet. But we do have a, a few more shows with great guests. Next week I have a special bonus episode on Monday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific time. And then another show again at 5.30 Eastern time. Yeah, so I'll be podcasting basically all day on Monday. So tune in and two really great guests, the author Viet Thanh Nguyen, who wrote The Sympathizer, which is getting fantastic reviews. It's a great book. And also earlier in the day, uh, the founders of Multicultural Kids. So please tune in then. By the way, um, thanks again, Joy, for the review. If anyone wants to join Joy's review up there on iTunes, that would be great. It would be so helpful to 
to get listed on iTunes in some way. Uh, the more reviews, the better. The better reviews, also the better. And if you have any show ideas, feel free to email me at Heidi at HeidiWDeRoe.com. I love, love to hear from you. Um, and if you want to be part of a listener spotlight, I'd love to hear from you because I think the, those regular stories about people's lives are also very important to share. That's it for today. I'm your host, Heidi DeRoe. Thanks for joining me on the Mixed Experience. I'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.